Hey, y'all, welcome to episode 164 of Reclaiming the Faith. Today, my wife and I look at Acts 17 to help build a foundation for our study on 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at the Church of Thessalonica's origin story, and uh, that'll really help us understand a lot of what Paul has to say in that letter uh, of 1 Thessalonians, since we'll have the backstory in our minds. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, if you've purchased a copy of my new book, The Final Abominable Temple, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on Amazon. That would be a tremendous blessing to me. And if you haven't purchased your copy yet, uh, paperback, hardback, uh, audio and digital formats are available for you to purchase on Amazon and anywhere where you can buy books. So please go check out that link in the description for my new book, The Final Abominable Temple. I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, and you can find links to all of our content by visiting uh, omegafrequency.com. You can go check out our YouTube channels, uh, our Rumble channel, and the podcast, of course, which is called Omega Frequency. Go check that out. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 164. So, Steph, Phil, we're starting our series on First Thessalonians. We are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's exciting. In, it is exciting. It, it's real exciting for me. And um, to to do that, though, we need to start with Paul and Silas and Timothy all mm-hmm. going to Thessalonica. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> now that happened in Acts seventeen. Mm-hmm. So we're going to discuss that today, Acts 17, and um, going to look at this, uh, this church and its foundation so we can have a good context for 1 Thessalonians when we get into it. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So we got three people Mm -hmm. that are going to be writing this letter. It's Paul, Silvanus, also known as Silas. Silvanus is in uh, 1 Peter. He's probably Peter's scribe. I got to say, if I'm choosing between Silas and Sylvanus, I, I want to choose Silas. I do, yeah. <laughs> Sylvanus is not a name you hear very much. Right. It's, it's a pretty easy call. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, these guys are all called apostles by Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. We sometimes think about the 12 apostles only. Uh, and then Paul and mm-hmm. James added as well, James, the brother of Jesus. But the word apostle is also used by Paul here for Silas and Timothy. And uh, that's pretty cool. So this Silas guy, what's he about? That's what I want to know. <laughs> yeah. So we actually first see Silas in Acts 15. And uh, that's at the Jerusalem council. So Silas is there at the Jerusalem council. 
And uh, in verse 22, it says, It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. So Silas was part of that church in Jerusalem, and he was considered a leading man there. So okay, the prominent dude. Is that like the same as an elder? Uh, I don't think so. It, it's possible, but it it Luke, the writer of Acts, says that the apostles and elders with the whole church chose men from among among them to send to Antioch. So it could be that he's one of the elders, or it could be just that he's a leading dude that is highly thought of uh, in the church. So in verse 32, why is he highly thought of? In verse 32 of Acts 15, we find out a little bit more about Silas and this uh, Barsabbas guy, Judas Barsabbas, okay? Uh, Judas and Silas also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. That's in Antioch. So Silas is not just a leading man among the church at Jerusalem. He's also a prophet, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, eventually Silas decides to stay in Antioch, and he and Paul become buddies. So after Barnabas and Paul have that split, Paul chooses Silas. He knows he's a trustworthy guy. He knows Silas is a prophet. Um, We find out that Silas is also a Roman citizen from Acts 16, because Paul and Silas both flash their citizenship cards. So this guy is a Jew, but he's also a Roman citizen like Paul. Paul and like Paul, Silas is a prophet. So these guys have a lot in common. Seems like a pretty good traveling companion mm-hmm. for Paul. Um, now, Paul and Silas and Timothy, not Luke, go to Thessalonica. And we're going to see that in the first verse of Acts 17, because Paul changes from we the first person plural, to they went to Thessalonica after uh, Philippi. So Luke was with them at Philippi, but Luke stays in Philippi while Silas, Paul, and Timothy all go to Thessalonica, which is uh, about two days walk south, just slightly southwest of Philippi. Thessalonica was a major city in Macedonia, so it was not a colony of Rome like Philippi was, but it was the capital city of Macedonia, So, and it became a free Roman city. So it is, it's a major, major Roman city, and Thus, it's going to have some really strong uh, patriots there to Rome, kind of like Philippi, but um, not probably not as uh, 
not as strong of patriotism as Philippi was because it was a Roman colony where a lot of ex-soldiers lived, but it's still going to be highly patriotic. All right? Okay. All right. So Paul and Silas and Timothy go there. This is toward the beginning of the second missionary journey. Philippi is the first place. Uh, So this is probably around A.D. 49 that they go there. All right. So shall we dive in? Sure. All right. Steph, you want to read Acts 17 verses. Let's do 1 through 10. We'll get a little bit of... uh, contrast with the reception at Berea. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. All right. I guess we could have read a little bit more. Can you read a couple more verses? Sure. Through which one? Uh, Just the end of Berea. Okay. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens— and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come and let him as soon as possible, they left. All right. Very cool. So again, uh, in Acts 17, 1, they're traveling just slightly southwest from Philippi to Thessalonica. So he's going down at Amphipolis, Apollonia, and he goes to a synagogue of the Jews. Now, why is Paul going to a synagogue of the Jews? Didn't he say at uh, in Acts 13 in Pisidian Antioch, like, since you guys don't consider yourself worthy of eternal life, and he's talking to the Jews at Pisidian Antioch, since you guys don't consider yourself worthy to, to have eternal life, we're going to go to the Gentiles. Enough of this, you know? Yeah. Why does he go to the synagogue again? 
Why does he keep on going to the synagogue if Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of reasons, but the biggest being he still, he cares about all people. That's, he's trying to reach everyone. And I mean, with the Jews, you have a great starting place. You know, they, they have got the truth up to a point and then they missed what Jesus was about. So that's why he would start there. Yeah, they have the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. And they were called to be a light to the Gentiles. That's a mm-hmm. verse that from Isaiah 49 that Paul brings up in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13. He's basically saying, this was your mission. So let's kind of help my fellow countrymen, my brethren, fulfill their mission. We got a lot of Jews in the synagogues. We have a lot of Greeks in the synagogues. Let's be this light to them, show them who that true Israel is, Jesus, mm. right? The true Messiah. So that's some interesting stuff. You know, he's turning to the Gentiles um, because that's the main mission of the Jews. And uh, he keeps on going to the synagogues because this is still one of the main purposes of the Jews. Um, and Paul does not believe that God deals with the church and the Jews separately. He doesn't think that God has two separate purposes. He doesn't think that all Jews are completely hardened to the message of the gospel. He doesn't believe that. He believes that there's a partial hardening of the Jews that has taken place, but not a complete hardening. So he keeps on going to these Jews, and sure enough, you still see Jews coming to know Jesus, coming to believe in Jesus, basically at every stop along the way. But you also see some opposition from Mm -hmm. the Jews, just like you see opposition from the Gentiles. You see both Mm -hmm. happening every step of the way. So Acts 17, 2, according to Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue. That's his custom. He didn't change. That's his... That's his mission. That's his standard operating procedure, you know? So he goes there, and for three Sabbaths, he reasons with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. So, how do we reason from the scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer? I mean, like from Isaiah, the prophecies, we talk, there's a ton of prophecies that talk about the, the suffering of the Messiah. Yeah. Yeah. From Isaiah 52 and 53, mm-hmm. 52 is marred more marred beyond recognition. Mm-hmm. 53 is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the chastised. stripes were healed. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Psalm 22, mm-hmm. right? About my hands and my feet you have pierced, mm-hmm. right? Um, Psalm 69 is full of... Uh, Messiah suffering language. This is a psalm that is frequently quoted by uh, by the writers of the New Testament. Psalm sixty nine. It's the psalm also where uh, Jesus says, uh, "I thirst," right? Mm-hmm. And um, 
Yeah. So John brings that up in John 19. He says, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I'm, I'm thirsty. And he drinks gall mixed with vinegar or whatever. That's right out of Psalm 69. Interesting stuff. You see the Messiah being cut off in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. That language seems to have uh, some pretty uh, harsh and violent connotations to it. Um, But what about rising from the dead? Where in the scripture do we either see a direct prophecy uh, saying that the Messiah is going to rise from the dead or like a type of um, the Messiah rising from the dead? Uh, Well, with Jonah... You have three days in the in the fish, in the great fish, and then he's spit out, you know, Jesus, the sign of Jonah. Mm-hmm. He's going to rise after three days. Yeah, yeah. So the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth yeah. for three days, right? So, yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic one. Uh, you also have, like, in terms of a direct prophecy, you have Psalm 16, you will not abandon your Holy One to Sheol, right? You won't allow your Holy One to decay. Mm-hmm. So that's one that the disciples and the apostles go to frequently. When we see that in Acts chapter 2, we see it in Acts chapter 4. Paul uses it as, as well in uh, his defense of the Gospels, um, of, sorry, defense of uh, the resurrection. Now you see um, in Hosea chapter 6, um, that on the third day he will revive us language in Hosea 6, which is interesting. But types are cool, like the sign of Jonah that you mentioned, and also like Joseph being a type who is uh, sold into slavery basically for 20 pieces of silver, so he's suffering. And then he, because of his righteousness, gets thrown into the dungeon, but because of his also because of his faithfulness, gets brought up out of the dungeon and elevated to the right hand of the king of the earth, basically, to Pharaoh, right? And then serves as a deliverer for his brethren, for those who opposed him, uh, which is pretty cool. And you also have people like Daniel, if you think about Daniel chapter 6, being uh, given a death sentence because of his righteousness, the people working against him get him thrown into the lion's den. Uh, yet this um, this punishment, as he's down in the pit, it does not consume him. Uh, he is brought back up out of the pit, unscathed, and again elevated. So uh, those are some types. Another prophecy or. I'd say a type that kind of functions as a prophecy is found in Genesis chapter 1 when we see the different days of creation and you see on day 3 the different plants coming up out of the ground, but there's no sun. There's only a sun on day 4, so how are plants growing and crops growing without having a sun? This is other than Genesis 1-1 miracle something coming out of nothing, this is the first miracle uh, that you see while uh, while creation is in order. 
life coming out of the ground miraculously on the third day. So there there are several different places that Paul could turn uh, to talk about not just the suffering of the Messiah, but also the resurrection or of, of the Messiah or a miracle happening on the third day. Um, so yeah, you got any thoughts? Yeah, I was just thinking about like Paul going to the synagogues and I mean, who Paul was before he met Jesus, I mean, he was the, you know, chief among Jews, like he was a big deal and he studied scripture and he knew it really well. And I mean, I don't know how long has passed at this point since his conversion. How how many years are we talking? Oh, well, possibly, if this is 49, possibly 15 years or so. Okay. So maybe some people have knew knew of him potentially but he this is he has a special heart for them more than anything because that was him he sees himself in these people in the synagogues and he has this common ground with them that is very very deep and he sees how god opened his eyes and he's praying for the same thing for his these brothers yeah yeah that's great that's great and Praise God, not all the Jews reject the message. 17.4, Acts 17.4 says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. This is speaking specifically of the Jews, because then Luke says, Along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks. So you have some Jews but a large number of the God-fearers. So these are people that are practicing, the, they're, they're, they're Gentiles, but they're practicing the Jewish religion, kind of like a Cornelius yeah. in Acts 10. And a number of the leading women. So you have Jews, some Jews uh, from different stripes, you know, different socioeconomic status, I would imagine. Then you have just regular God-fearing Greeks. So Greeks, Gentiles who practice the Jewish religion, but they're just regular Joes. And then you have some very rich, prominent Greek women, Gentile women. These would probably be people similar to Lydia in Philippi, a prominent woman. So... Uh, why? Go ahead. I was just going to say, do you think that means like prominent men were not joining this cause or they're just maybe not mentioned? I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that's probably the case. The prominent men were like undecided. Hmm. Perhaps. We're not seeing, not seeing the, the validity of it, not seeing the point in it. You know, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians about how the crucifixion is foolishness to Greeks. Foolishness. What? Yeah. God is going to die on a cross? Like, really? So I can see a lot of the men just rejecting it based on absurdity, not really giving it the time of day. 
Um, but that's just kind of a theory. All right. So Acts 17, 5, uh, though some Jews accepted, the majority there in Thessalonica don't. Uh, so Paul, uh, Luke writes that, but the Jews becoming jealous. Now that could be like jealousy or that could be zealous. The, the picture is of a boiling pot kind of like boiling over, a pot boiling over with water. So this zeal, on they're like fired up, mm-hmm. okay? But it could be jealousy that they're losing some converts, or they're 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 losing some Jews to Paul's message, okay? It could be that they are viewing Paul um, as a false prophet. So it may be that there's some insincere ones who are just about control and popularity. There could be some who are not convinced by Paul's message, and they're sincere, though, and they really think Paul is a false prophet, kind of like Paul in Acts chapter uh, 7 and 8 and 9, being very zealous for the tradition of the fathers, being so zealous that he's persecuting the church because he's seeing the Christians as a wicked heresy, heretical branch of Judaism that are idolaters and they're following false prophets and they need to be stamped out. So it could be that that is what's going on. It's probably a mixture of for real ones and insincere ones, if that makes sense. Hmm. But they go and they get some wicked men from the marketplace. So these are like... (laughs) (laughs) rabble-rousers. Basically, like, uh, they are folks who hang around the Agora just kind of wanting to stir up trouble. Maybe they're sort of like uh, certain groups in our country that Mm -hmm. are for hire groups that can form a mob and just create chaos. That kind of seems like who the, the unbelieving Jews turn to. Now, it's interesting. They get these wicked men, they form a mob, and they set the city in an uproar, which is really interesting. So they cause the uproar in the city. Yeah. And And then they complain about it. They're about to accuse (laughs) Paul, Silas, and Timothy of doing that. Mm. They create the problem and blame that on the Christians. Yeah. Interesting. That could be something similar to what Nero does uh, about 20 years later or 15, 20 years later when he sets the city of Rome on fire and blames it on the Christians. Yeah. I mean, they're not technically wrong because the words that the apostles said were what upset them and created the uproar, even though they are the ones in an uproar. So they're not like wrong, but they, they caused it. I mean, you know, like they're the, the apostles words infuriated them, but they are responsible for their own actions. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the, the apostles words, just to push back a little bit, weren't causing the city to get in an uproar. They were causing the synagogue Okay, I see. To get in an uproar. And then these guys who don't have any business with the synagogue, Mm -hmm. they don't care about Judaism. They're just basically getting paid, perhaps, or uh, encouraged to go start this uproar in the city. 
Mm, okay. Right? Because Paul, Silas, and Timothy are n- not being bad citizens. Mm-hmm. And the Jews who are believing and the Greeks who are believing, they're not being bad citizens right now. They're not causing chaos in the city. But it soon turns out that way, not by their own doing. Let's let's keep going. So, um, verse 6, when they did not... Oh, sorry, sorry, let's let's stay in five for a second. So they attacked the house of Jason. Now Jason is mentioned by Paul in Romans chapter 16, verse 21, as being with him when he's writing the letter to the Romans. Now it's possible it's a different Jason, but it's probable that it's the same Jason. And this Jason is probably one of uh either the uh, Jews who believed or one of the God-fearing Greeks who believed, but regardless, he welcomes Paul into his home at some point, which is why these uh, wicked men attack the house of Jason. So they're like, they. it seems like they just like broke into the house looking for Paul, mm. which is crazy. Then in verse 6, when they did not find Paul, Silas, and Timothy at Jason's house, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities. So they literally dragged them out of the house. Now, that word drag is also used in Acts uh, chapter 8, I believe at the beginning of 8, where it's talking about Paul going around from house to house, dragging people, dragging Christians out of the houses. So what Paul did to others is now being done because of Paul. Mm. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So you can imagine the inner turmoil that is going on in Paul, like, oh, crud. <laughs> you know, like... Oh, crud. <laughs> look at what I'm doing to these other yeah. to these Christians. Like, I'm okay with me getting beaten, mm-hmm. but I don't want other people to be beaten. Right. You know? So, also, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, later on, when, we, when we're in 1 Thessalonians, you're going to see that Paul... During this time that he's with them, which is probably more than three weeks, um, but during this time he's with them, he's not just preaching uh, the Messiah being crucified and rising from the dead. He's preaching many things, one of them being that they were going to get persecuted, that Paul was going to get persecuted. He was telling them those things in those three weeks like the believers, and sure enough, then it comes, Mm. which is really interesting. So you see Paul's prophetic gift in 1 Thessalonians kind of adding to this story. You don't see it in Acts, him saying, we're about to get persecuted. But -hmm. you see him say that, remember how I told you those things? Right. Yeah, because persecution is now coming upon them as well. So he's like, this is a... It's kind of like in Lystra in Acts 14 when he says it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. So, um, 
verse six there, they're dragging Jason, some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the whole world have come here also. That upset means to like turn on its head. So they're Mm -hmm. turning the world upside down, that whole idea. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. So he's being, he's aiding and abetting these people who are basically committing sedition. How do we know that? Well, verse 7, he's welcomed them all, Jason has, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. What decrees? Saying that there is another king, Jesus. So, let me read just a little brief comment from uh, G.K. Beale's commentary on 1 Thessalonians. He says, uh, and this is in verse, uh, verse, page 15, he says, The pagans of Thessalonica viewed Paul as a traitor to Caesar, both politically as head of state and religiously as head of the imperial cult. So the head of the state, obviously, is Caesar, but there's a title that Caesar was given, which was Pontifex Maximus, which means the supreme bridge builder, which is the term of high priest. Hmm. So he's the, the head of the state and the high priest of the imperial cult, the cult of the state. So what is the main threat to... The governments of the world, Christianity, which is interesting, not that they're seeking to be uh, in positions of government. But they have a different allegiance. Right, because all governments basically want their people to view the government as the savior. Right. So anytime that you're, you're truly devoted to Jesus, you have completely set that aside. Yeah. Yeah, you are not my God anymore. Yeah. Jesus is. Now, this kind of goes along with the main message from Paul. It's not just Christ crucified. You know, I I reason to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Well, Paul didn't just preach Christ being crucified. He also preached Christ rising from the dead. Mm-hmm. You know, if we don't preach the the resurrection, if the resurrection didn't happen, then our hope is in vain. Yeah. Right. So that's kind of a hyperbolic statement of, I reasoned to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's hyperbole. But Paul also is teaching the way of Jesus, and he's preaching the same gospel as Jesus, which is the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus went through all the synagogues of Galilee in Matthew chapter 3, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Mark says it's the gospel of the king- kingdom. Uh, Luke says it's the gospel of the kingdom of God. In Luke 4, I believe, it's either 4 or 3. I think it's 4. But um, did Paul preach the gospel of the kingdom of God? Well, in Acts 19, he enters the synagogue at Ephesus. And he speaks boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Acts 28, he's in Rome. And so the Jews of Rome come and set aside a day for Paul. He came to them at his lot. 
They came to him at Paul's lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God. And then it continues in verse 30, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, this is in Rome, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Paul is preaching the same gospel as Jesus. There is a different king. His name is Caesar. Or his name is Jesus. It's not Caesar. And this is these are the values of the kingdom. This is how you get into the kingdom. This is what a citizen of the kingdom looks like. If you remember when we talked about uh, when we talked in Philippians um, in chapter three about we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And now that word conduct is basically taking the word citizen and turning it into a verb. Citizen yourself. Mm. Like a king, like a citizen of the gospel of the kingdom of God. You yeah. know? Live like a citizen of heaven. So it's it's cool how Paul is teaching the same thing as Jesus, which is really the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I have commanded you. Right. Was Paul not teaching people to obey what Jesus taught? He would be a pretty big-time sinner. Right. If he rejected that great commission. So Paul's preaching the same stuff, and we're going to find that to be true as we go through this letter of First Thessalonians and then Second Thessalonians as well, how Paul continues to refer back to the instruction of the Lord, the teaching of the Lord. Um, so yeah, Paul is getting accused here of sedition. Uh, let me continue with that Beale quote. Moreover, the Jews would have seen Paul as a defector from the true religion and an illegitimate representative of God. So the Greeks are seeing him as seditious, and the Jews are seeing him as an apostate, false prophet. Mm -hmm. So he is uh, definitely not making many friends <laughs> there in Thessalonica. Um. You got any thoughts on that? No, I was just thinking about, you know, that comment. He's not making friends there, but then he's going to go on to... Berea. Berea. Yeah. Is it Berea or Berea? Berea. Berea. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he's going to have a very different reception. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. That's right. So let's let's get there. Acts 17, 8. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. When they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So this pledge is basically like a bond or a promise that uh, we're not going to keep, we're not going to stir up trouble, something like that, or fine. We're not totally sure what that is, but that passage is, or that, sorry, that word is used, a pledge, they gave them a pledge, is used in Matthew 28 by uh, Matthew concerning the fairest, the, the leaders of the Jews giving a large sum of money to soldiers um, to say uh, 
that people had stolen his body. Mm. So stolen Jesus's body. So it's, it's a large sum of money. We're just not sure exactly what the purpose was. Right. So they let Jason and some of the brethren go. And then the brethren immediately send Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Um, it seems like that's a, a protective thing for the church there. Paul and Silas are glad to uh, to head on out. Now, it's interesting that Timothy stays at that point. Interesting. Mm-hmm. At least for a little bit. Now, when they get to Berea, just like you talked about, they go to the synagogue of the Jews and they get a different reception. The... Jews at Berea are more noble than the previous group, and they eagerly receive it. What does noble mean there? Because I feel like that's a a weird... So I think that's hitting on the fact that these guys are, they are more godly and they have more integrity, Okay, which would speak to not all of the Jews in Thessalonica, because I think there were probably some sincere ones that rejected Paul. They're just speaking as a whole. But there were a large number who got these false witnesses up, right? So contrast it to the the uh, insincere Jews at Thessalonica, right, who are encouraging people to bear false witness. That's not very noble. <laughs> no. Right. I think that's, that's the easiest way to look at it. But um, these... These Jews eagerly look through the scriptures to find out if what Paul and Silas are saying are true. And you have a large number of Jews uh, at Berea believing Paul and Silas, which is really neat. So it's not, it's not that everywhere all Jews don't believe the message. It's not that God deals with Israel and the church uh, at different times, um, th- those those beliefs just are quickly and easily refuted by Scripture. And the fact that there are Jewish believers in Jesus, there have been for the last 2,000 years, or today. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right. Well, we are uh, done with uh, our Acts 17 foundational work for our letters, uh, in the letter of 1 Thessalonians and then later 2 Thessalonians. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. You have any final thoughts? No, I mean, I think it's it's great to look at this kind of stuff beforehand because, I mean, when I'm reading through the Bible, a lot of times I'm just sort of going off a reading plan or whatever, and I, I, I rarely see them lumped together in this way and so I'm really interested to see new insights that are going to come out just with coming in with Acts 17 before we study it. Absolutely.